Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to episode 62 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And well done, England. There were shouts from every single house on my street. What after a game. What a penalty game. curse was broken. I think it was a game of two halves. <laughs> You're being a dick about this and actually I have adopted your whole... When does the football competition finish? No, actually, do you know what? Last night I saw your amazing. tweet and I agree with you. I was sitting on my sofa and what was quite weird is my neighbours underneath me were cheering for Colombia and everyone outside was cheering for England. So I had this weird sort of cacophonous, you know, sonic I, uh, war. But it was an amazing moment of feeling united when I would hear those cheers. And it was like sonorous. It went across all of Camden and I heard it kind of bellow through my windows. It was really wonderful. But I think it went across everywhere yeah so many people replied from like all different bits of england saying oh i can hear it and i'm here it's very unifying i thought it was magical actually joking aside i found it quite moving and that is what's so wonderful about the football competition and (laughs) and other global championships is that sport is unbelievably unifying yes and, and we're going to get onto that later, actually, with our one of our Ask the Hilo questions. We are. Yeah. But to end on that, I found my husband in the kitchen doing an adrenaline-induced roly-poly. <laughs> with this sweaty England shirt just stuck to his back. Does he wear the shirt while yeah. he's watching it? Yep. Someone tweeted the other day, I can't remember who it was, saying, imagine if you watched, like, Downton Abbey, <laughs> like, in full period, <laughs> in full period costume. If anyone's going to do that, you are. But you have a little maid's outfit. (laughs) In other news, Cheryl Cole and Liam Payne have split up and Fashion Couture Week is under fire for seating Roman Polanski on the front row of Miu Miu, Ian Connor at Louis Vuitton and ASAP Barry on the front row at Dior. To recap, Polanski has been a fugitive from the US since he fled in 1978 while awaiting sentencing for having sex with a 13-year-old girl. The stylist and model Ian Connor has been accused of rape by no less than 21 different women. And rapper ASAP Barry was arrested in May for two counts of sexual assault dating from June of last year. So racking up the sexual assault charges there on all three counts, it's really disappointingly thoughtless of these brands. It goes way beyond the art versus the artist debate. Mm. Mm. I think it's bizarre. I think there's sometimes this sense in fashion, like in Hollywood, that they're what they're creating in their microcosm and what they're serving to the world is so important that it's somehow outside the the normal parameters of morality. But I think that's really beginning to change now as we're touching on in our topic today, actually, the feeling that creativity now has to intersect with the reality of where the world is. 
the courting of these men as if they've done nothing wrong. I'm interested by what you say about fashion and Hollywood, as it felt for a while actually like that very ethos was changing. Mm. Why did all the publications and brands go to the very public trouble of dropping Mario Testino and Bruce Weber only to endorse these men on their front row? It's like what I was saying last week about Johnny Depp. Why is he still the face of mm. Dior Homme? Mm. Why aren't we making a stand against men who perpetrate violence against women? What was the entire point of Me Too mm. if someone is going to go and put Roman Polanski or Ian Connor, for fuck's sake, 21 counts of rape? Anyway. It's funny with Roman Polanski as well, the way that I feel like the words Roman Polanski has just become like shorthand for yeah. a man who abused power. This morning I went and looked at the case again because it was so before our time and I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with it but it is like truly horrifying. Well, he, Yeah, because he's been accused of statutory rape which is where you have consensual sex with a minor, right? 13 year old. Yeah. I yeah. know. It's an extraordinary thing, yeah. What have you been enjoying this week in lighter news? Um, have you watched The Durrells? No, I saw a tweet that you finally watched it. It is very you. I'm surprised it took you so long. I know. It's... You look quite durrily today, actually. <laughs> well, I've now got knee bear quite alert. Keely Hawes. Is I've that got what she's called? Keely Hawes, yes. <laughs> I've now got knee bear alert for 1930s tea dresses. Um, so as Panda says, the Durrells, it's been around, I think the first series was uh, shown in 2016. And um, it has replaced... Um, Downton Abbey I think in my heart in the place that has a desperate need for kind of beautiful landscapes and clipped accents and gentle storylines with just a hint of melodrama gentle storylines it's um, it's based on the book My Family and Other Animals which I really want to read now which is a memoir oh I loved that book is you, it good? I read it when I was at school you'll really like it yeah so it's written by the naturalist Gerald Durrell and it's about the time he spent as a child with his three siblings and his widowed mother uh, living in a very grand and dilapidated house on the island of Corfu. And it's about how he kind of fell in love with the wildlife and adopted a bit of a menagerie. So the person who recommended it to me was Rowan Pelling, whose taste I really trust. She's um, a writer and editor. And she said to me, she thinks I would like it because it's an example of stories about a very unconventional and complicated um, but very happy family, which is exactly what it is. And I've realised that's the same reason I think I love Transparent so much. It's about a family unit that are very, very close. I should say it's set in the 1930s. And it's about a family that are very close and very flawed, living in a non-traditional way, with a real kind of openness with each other. Um, and it looks at kind of family rivalries and growing up and family identity. It's just lovely. As you say, Keely Hawes plays the mother and she's so charming and relatable and lovable in it. And the island that it's set on is just so beautiful. So it's just a real indulgence to watch. And um, yeah, I'm loving it. You can watch series one on Netflix. My God, it hooked me in. Watched the whole thing in a week. And then series two, you have to pay for on Amazon. But that's fine. We like paying for good content. <laughs> I've also listened to, I think, my new favourite interview with Zadie Smith on a podcast called The Torre Show. The Torre Show is a podcast series in which the American journalist Torre Neblet interviews successful black people to explore what makes them successful and how they dealt with the most difficult moments of their lives. The way that I found this podcast is such a good tip if you're looking for new podcasts is there are certain people who I just could listen to all day because I just find the way that they think so interesting and so incisive 
that I just kind of want to hear what they think about everything. So John Ronson is one of them. Zadie Smith is another. Lena Dunham is one. And what I do is I put their name into the podcast store. I do that. And then you get every episode they've ever done. You discover some shit podcasts through but that. But you can well. discover some great <laughs> no, ones I agree. as well. Yeah. I agree. And it's really, in, yeah, I, that's exactly what I do. How funny. Yeah, it's a really good way, I think, of accessing those people. And... Um, this, and it's a, it does work because this is the best interview I've ever heard with Sadie Smith. She talks about why she doesn't engage with technology, her hunger for real life. It really creeped me out, actually. You probably, I'm saying you probably noticed as if you stalk me. You probably didn't notice. I had like five days where I just couldn't touch Instagram after listening to the podcast. I didn't notice. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you are my number one troller, so I thought you might have done. <laughs> um yeah, so that that was that's a really I just love her talking about her her fear and skepticism with the online world because she's not snooty about it and she really fears it and she's very cognizant about time passing and death hurtling towards death and I think marrying that fear of time slipping through your fingers and how you can be okay with spending hours and hours and hours fritting away time online is a really interesting tension i have that fear i'm less death orientated than you are mm. but the reason why i'm always so manic i think is i cannot bear wasting Waste time, time because yeah. i'm always trying to fit too many things into my day you know have a full-time job also mm. be present for my baby decorate a Your, whole house yeah. i can't like i would never just do nothing for a day you're like, very efficient you're very efficient with time in a way that i'm not i think i'm a bit of a wibbler no, because when you do your wibbling, you're 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 do, you are you're actually much stricter than I am about like you will not engage in like content or parts of the world that you are not interested in. You mm. absolutely will just shut your eyes to it and sort of waddle on. <laughs> Whereas I feel like I have to sort of take it all in, read all of it, yeah. listen to all of it, do all of it. Yeah. Whereas, um, so I don't think that you wibble wobble. I think you're just a bit um more. I'm easily distracted. I'm easily distracted and I don't like it about myself. You do sometimes send me like guitar videos that I know that several distractions have led you to that point. <laughs> but that's why I, yeah, I, I want think, to I get on top of it. I think you're ridiculously efficient, so... Oh, thanks. I don't know what you're talking about. But, I, but it's, it's, a, it's a really... Good I just find that when you have people talking about tech and the online world who don't engage with it, it can, it can just be so reductive and haughty. And, totally. And she's not. She's not in it. So I found that really interesting. Um, she talks about shedding the need for approval as you get older, which again is something I know you and I find very interesting. Um, I th- you'd find it fascinating. She talks about, she has two young children and she talks about how you teach your children about the horrors of history. And she talks about how the moment she found out about lynching when she was a kid or the moment that you find out about Nazi Germany how the whole world, how that kind of topples everything for you as a child and the way that you trust the world and see the world. Are you going to check out more of the Torre interviewees now? Yes, he's a really, really thoughtful um, interviewer. And it's long, it's a long interview. I think it's it's an hour and a half. So it's a good one to do when you're doing all your cleaning. Um, and I've actually, I'm now onto my third listen of it because I really want to absorb the stuff that she was saying because it, it was so profound. And I'd actually like to insert a clip here where she's talking about how we need to think differently about opinions. It's a difference between taking positions which are like uh, something that accrues to you, as if I wear this great dress, I have these great shoes, I have these great opinions. <laughs> That's not what interests me. I'm interested in hearing people think about something. 
really think it through, really discuss it. Yeah. If you have a selection of the right opinions or the wrong opinions, they're not um, commodities, you know? That's not something that concerns me. And finally, I very rarely give music recommendations as I'm always listening to the same crusty old bands from 1967. But it struck me this week that I have been listening almost exclusively for a month to a new album called Geography by Tom Mish. And I actually think you'd really, really, really like him. He's an amazingly talented guitarist. Guitar geeks should follow him on Instagram because he's always working out these amazing little riffs on his guitar in his bedroom. He's kind of, he's got a real interest in jazz and hip hop and soul and R&B and that's really fused into his music. It's like so rich with influence, his music. The last album was astonishing, but I really think this is quite a different and quite amazing new sound this is why i don't talk about music on this podcast um and he's also amazing to see live i've seen him about four times live also have a bit of a crush on him so this not mutually exclusive but that's just a nice uh, bonus and this fire i feel why is it burning so slowly i can't stop thinking of you like the five pounds you owe me Cause you're on my mind I have spent much of the last week listening to the entire first series of Dear Joan and Jerrica. It's incredible, isn't it? I don't make a habit of repeating Dolly's recommendations or even taking them wholesale. But oh my God, this is the funniest and filthiest satire I've ever listened to. It made me so happy when you were texting me, you were WhatsApping me, telling me what episode you were on. I'm so glad you loved it as much as I did. Have you noticed I'm now heckling people to listen to it? Yeah. I'm just like cold tweeting people going, you have to listen to it. I've never listened to something like it though. It's so different. Joan and Jerrica. You know, we're doing a bumper ask the high low later and it's going to be so hard for me not to start with. Dear Joan and Jerrica. Why don't we do it in Joan and Jerrica voices? Which one would you go for? I think I could do either, actually. Do you think you could do either? Uh, I think you'd be a more convincing Jerrica than me. He's had several strokes and he's back in the hospital again. Um, Alpha's wheelchair, crap kneecap. <laughs> okay, That's right. a good Jerrica. So many high low listeners, probably more than any other recommendation that we've given tweet us and saying that they're loving it have you had any hate for joan and jenny no everyone's loving it i've had like hundreds of tweets and i'm worried DMs. some people won't realize it's satire and it is so on the nose and what else have you been interesting <laughs> i read a brilliant piece this week by hannah jane parkinson for the guardian about why mental illness is not the same as a broken leg i know i'm not alone when i say that this is one of the best pieces of writing about mental health that i've ever read Hannah has suffered from mental illness since the age of 13. It really reinforced to me that we need to stop abusing the term I'm really depressed or to identify a bad day or a bout of low level anxiety for what it is because to read what Hannah has been through renders that kind of assumption or sort of lazy hyperbole really insulting. She writes at one point that there's not a single hospital in North London that she's not been treated in. She's been sectioned, she's tried to commit suicide, she's taken long periods off work. This bit about the way we talk about mental health I found particularly enlightening. 
In recent years, the discussion around mental health has hit the mainstream. I call it the conversation. The conversation is dominated by positivity and the memification of a battle won. It isn't a bad thing that we're talking more about mental health. It would be silly to argue otherwise. But this does not mean it is not infuriating to come home from a secure hospital, suicidal, to a bunch of celebrity awareness raising selfies and thousands of people saying that all you need to do is ask for help when you've been asking for help and not getting it. She goes on to say, the conversation tends to focus on depression and anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder. It is less comfortable with the mental illnesses deemed more unpalatable. People who act erratically, hallucinate, have violent episodes or interpersonal instability. She says that stigmas exist for a reason because they come from a place of fear, both for the person who is not suffering and the person that is. The key isn't to deny this, she says, but to educate. Instagram slogans do not make it clear what depersonalization is, for instance, and that it won't be solved by a picture of someone walking on a beach. It's good that Lynx Deodorant teamed up with the male mental health campaign against living miserably, but is find your magic not the most patronizing slogan of all time. It's a really interesting look about how modern culture is very much embracing mental health and mental illnesses and the nuances, but as she says, we're still we're still looking at kind of like the sexier bits mm, and mm. and we're still hoping that like a cup of tea and a foot rub can I, I'm putting words in time out she mm. doesn't say that but that's what I took from this and yeah. um found it a really raw and honest piece and also a reminder to us all who are of you know strong mental health um not to use those terms lightly to yeah. respect the people that have really been through their own kind of mental health mm. Mm. yeah agreed I also really enjoyed this week an interview with the comedian Adam Kay by Emma Gannon for her Control-Alt-Delete podcast. Oh, I'll listen to that. Adam wrote the book This Is Going To Hurt about his time as an NHS junior doctor, which I've been dying to read and plan to this summer. He talks about the impact, um, the kind of familial and relationship impact of working a 97-hour week. Can you imagine? That's 19 hours a day. So you're fitting in all of your sleep and showers and phone calls and life admin and eating into five hours a day. And he talks about how friendships have just felt by the wayside um it's a very interesting look at the nhs he talks about how when he wrote the book he went for a meeting with jeremy hunt and at one point jeremy hunt sort of splutters i thought this was going to be a friendly conversation so then at the end adam goes listen i'm really sorry if i came off kind of differently to mm. how i do in the book because obviously jeremy seemed a bit taken aback and he goes no you've been entirely consistent throughout <laughs> um and he's very funny about his job which was in obs and gyne aka as he calls it brats and twats <laughs> and he talks about all the hilarious things he's extracted from um, vaginas and rectums over the years and how they're quite seasonal so if it's Christmas time it might be like a fairy on top of the tree and he's got this incredible story about a woman who wanted to propose to her boyfriend so for reasons known only to her she put the ring for him inside a kinder egg and then inserted it vaginally with the idea that he (laughs) he was meant to extract it she I don't know I guess she'd just say can you just hoik something out there's a present view inside anyway it rotated so it wasn't like the long way it was like you know like the width way she still wouldn't tell him what it was she didn't want to ruin the surprise she wouldn't even tell like the doctor she wouldn't even tell adam what it was so it was only when it came out anyway the boyfriend found it very romantic and he said yes lastly there is a brilliant interview with Catelyn moran by alistair campbell in the new issue of gq Alistair Campbell is a very good interviewer. I frequently really enjoy his long interviews for GQ. And this is a brilliant interview with Catelyn that covers women, politics, specifically why she no longer believes in Jeremy Corbyn, 
porn, masturbation, Obama, the Kardashians, incels, Facebook and the sharing of data, public morality, why she sends her kids to private school as someone who's basically a socialist. It's just such a fulsome interview. It's interrogative. And I just wanted to read this bit because I think it's a really good reflection of the dynamic between interviewer and interviewee. It's smart and sharp, but also quite playful. So the article ends with, when Christopher Hitchens said women aren't funny and Martin Amos said my sex writing was lads mag talk, it was like, you're not friendly to women, interested in women. You've never sat and talked to a woman. If you go to a pub and there's a group of men laughing and a group of women laughing, women will be laughing 10 times harder because they're 10 times funnier because they've got 10 times more bullshit to deal with. They're the ones like, you're gonna make me pee, stop. Whereas men will be going, nice, that was a good joke, Simon. Strong humour. My humour, a meter, is tipping over. Support for the Hilo comes from our sponsor, Moet and Shandon. It's been an absolute scorcher of a summer already, and while that's been pretty lovely, what I cannot abide is lukewarm wine when you're dining al fresco. I know you can get those unmeltable ice cubes, but honestly, Moet seems to have it covered already. Our pals at Moet have created a version of their super famous Brute Imperial Champagne that was made to pour over ice in that it actually tastes better with the ice. I think that's both clever and chic. Moet actually created the On Ice category in 2011 and no one has done it better, although many have tried, bringing the party to the poolside. When I think of Moet, I think of the biggest champagne brand in the world, most luxurious celebrations, the Golden Globes, the champagne of choice on Concorde, their insane mini Moet vending machines, christening a yacht, that was their idea, and those beautiful champagne towers, of which the tallest one, I think, was something like 50,000 glasses. Moet have a saying, Savoir faire is know-how, but they have savoir fait. They know how to throw a party. A good string for any bow. Thanks very much to Moet and Shandon. It's now time for the top line, read by Dolly Alderton, who currently has a cherry in her mouth like she's in Lolita. Can you twist a stalk in your mouth? I've never tried. It, it determines whether you're a good snogger or not. Oh my god, how old are you? Are you going to give me like a shag band next? <laughs> it's Roger Federer has signed a $300 million 10-year endorsement deal with Uniqlo, dwarfing the mere $10 million a year he was making with Nike. Forbes ranks Federer as one of the richest sports stars in the world. He earned $77 million last year alone. The number of smokers in Britain has fallen by a quarter since 2011, with 2 million people ditching the fags in the last seven years. Duncan Selby, Chief Executive of Public Health England, says that we are tantalisingly close to creating the first ever smoke-free generation. Thanks to the heatwave, a village long submerged under a massive reservoir is again slowly emerging. Mardale Green in Cumbria has rarely been seen since disappearing in 1935, when the valley was flooded to make way for Horswater Reservoir. Hundreds of villagers were evicted from their homes and most of the buildings were blown up by royal engineers who used them for demolition practice. Mardale last emerged from the watery depths of the reservoir during a bout of hot weather in 2014. A health worker has been arrested on suspicion of murdering eight babies. The woman is also accused of the attempted murder of a further six babies, according to police. Cheshire police said the arrest was made following an investigation at the neonatal unit at the Countess of Chester Hospital. 
Court action is underway over leaked Doctor Who footage, which has been shared online months before the 11th series is due to air. The 53-second clip and two pictures, which were uploaded on American messaging app Tapper Talk, both feature actress Jodie Whittaker, the 13th Doctor in the classic sci-fi series. Guy Pearce has suggested he was groped by Kevin Spacey when the pair appeared together in the 1997 film L.A. Confidential. In an interview on an Australian talk show, Guy Pearce was asked for his thoughts on working with Kevin Spacey. The actor replied, Tough one to talk about at the moment. Amazing actor, incredible actor. Slightly difficult time with Kevin. He's a handsy guy. Thankfully, I was 29 and not 14. Since last year, Kevin Spacey has been the subject of multiple accusations of sexual assault and misconduct. The Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, admitted he was being heckled by Siri as he addressed MPs at the House of Commons dispatch box this week while delivering a statement on Islamic State. The Cabinet Minister fumbled to find his phone while Siri told him, I found something on the web for Syrian Democratic Forces supported by... He quickly turned his phone off before apologising amid laughter from the House. Twelve schoolboys between the ages of 11 and 16 and their football coach were found trapped in a cave in Thailand on Monday, nine days after they went missing. Seven divers, including Thai Navy SEALs and a doctor and nurse, have now joined them, distributing the first food they'd received in 10 days, while a rescue force deliberate on how best to extricate the boys. They became trapped after they took refuge in the cave following a football session, with rising water causing a heavy rainfall, making it impossible for them to escape. Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon, is suing his family after they tried to stop him marrying someone and restricted his access to his bank accounts. The 88-year-old astronaut is taking legal action against his two children and former manager, who claim he has dementia. We are committed to protecting him, his reputation and his legacy. Our work together on this foundation is testament to that, his children said in a statement. There has been a sharp rise in ridiculous emergency calls during the recent spate of boiling hot weather and World Cup fever. Humberside Police in West Yorkshire revealed that recent 999 calls included a caller worried about a sad-looking horse and a woman who lost the key to her husband's handcuffs. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> a sad-looking horse. <laughs> discussion focuses on a program that Dolly and I both watched because the Hilo inbox told us to. Seriously, the inbox could not get enough of it. We have never ever had so many people emailing us, tweeting us, Instagram messaging us about one thing. Nanette is a piece of stand-up comedy by the Australian comic Hannah Gadsby and is currently streaming on Netflix. Hannah has been prominent on the Australian comedy scene since 2006 and Nanette actually won Best Comedy at the Edinburgh Fringe last year, but this was her first introduction to an international audience on such an enormous scale. Now Monica Lewinsky, Rebel Wilson, Kathy Griffin, Ellen Page and Roxanne Gay are all tweeting about it. A hilarious, thoughtful, devastating and utterly unique show which starts as a very pithy bit about growing up gay in Tasmania which only decriminalised homosexuality as recently as 1997 moves into this dark, powerful territory about the dangers of self-deprecation in women, teaching homophobia, on being assaulted and raped for looking like a man, why laughter or anger are not the answers and ultimately why she has to leave comedy. 
I, I love Tasmania. I, I loved, I loved uh, growing up there. I felt right at home. I did. But I had to leave uh, as soon as I found out I was a little bit lesbian. Um, and you do find out, don't you? Yeah. I got a letter. <laughs> Dear Sir, Madam. I'd heard so, so many things about what a revolutionary piece of work this was. I was worried that I'd be disappointed, but it actually took my breath away more than I thought it would. Mm. I think it really cemented a new chapter, not just in art and in public discourse, but the world we're slowly, not there yet, but in transit towards. I think it signified a moment in which the default experience is not just considered to be white, male and straight and a moment in which people will be held to account for their punchlines and a moment where the truth and the sadness of stories of the everyday and historic and systemic oppression can intersect on a platform as mainstream and universal and digestible and accessible and well-loved as stand-up comedy. The most interesting part of Nanette for me is when she addresses self-deprecation in women. And that's something I'd really like to talk about because self-deprecation is such a gendered emotional response. Men just don't do it. They don't. Because in general, they think they deserve plaudits for their hard work, as they rightly should. Women, on the other hand, will always give a reason why they don't deserve congratulations for hard work or something they're good at. Women are so nervous about coming across as arrogant that they deflect in order to reinforce authenticity and to remain likeable. And also, I think this bit is really key, to remain unassuming, a sort of constant reminder for us to know our place. Mm. And the thing is, self-deprecation is charming. It's charming in a woman. When a beautiful Hollywood actor is self-deprecating, you think, oh, how glorious, they're Mm. just like us. And they are just like us because they are a woman and they are self-deprecating. I realised for all my on-the-surface bombast, I do this all the time. If someone says I look nice, I literally go, no, I don't. Or where someone tells me I'm a good mother, I go, God, no, and tail off. And we all do it. The only way I know how to take a compliment, and Dolly, I was thinking about this, and you do it too, slightly differently, but you do it as well, is a slightly dorky sounding, oh, thanks. Mm. Never in a cool, confident, thanks very much, I actually really love this dress, Mm. kind of way. Or like, thanks for noticing me. And I've built a career out of self-deprecating humour. That's what I've built my career on. And I don't want to do that anymore. Because do you understand... (laughs) Do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. Hannah's self-deprecation is, of course, so much more than someone telling her that her dress looks nice. Self-deprecation for Hannah is at the root of her identity as a gay woman, a woman who has been assaulted and raped, and as a child who was taught to be homophobic and who parlayed this tension into comedy, which she no longer wants to do. She says she wants to tell the full story, not the one where she saves the audience from its full weight or her full wrath with a punchline. I think the way she unpicks self-deprecation in the context of being an already marginalised group to be really, really intelligent, because she's right, self-deprecation as a gay, overweight, 
ostensibly pretty butch woman is just a passport for approval from the privileged. It's a way of making yourself less threatening, less mockable, less vulnerable, more palatable. And it's a way of signifying to the world that your story as an already humiliated person, probably full and heavy with pain, doesn't have to be taken seriously. I don't know how she does it in such a seamless manner, but she talks about how all these things from the huge, profoundly damaging experience, as you mentioned, Pandora, of sexual and physical abuse, to homophobia where she grew up, to making herself and her appearance and her sexuality a punchline for a decade, adds up to this extraordinary sense of shame. She talks about how since she was a child, she's been made to believe by society, by the law in Tasmania, by her family and comedy and art and strangers on the street, that there is something inherently wrong about her. And she talks about internalised homophobia. The bit of the show that had me in tears first was when she talks about why she couldn't come out to her grandmother. And she begins with some jokes about it. And then the camera really close up to her face, which is visibly so full of emotion. She says that actually it's because deep down she knows she's so ashamed of her sexuality. She says she was basically taught to be homophobic. Mm. And she gives some really um, much needed context, I think, about how traditional Tasmania is or was at least when she was growing up. I mean, homosexuality being decriminalised in 1997 Mm. means that she was born during a time when it was literally illegal to be herself. And she says her mother knew she was gay even before she did. And obviously it was illegal. 70% of people voted against um, homosexuality. So she was like, my community did not want me to exist. And it's so good the way she breaks it down. Like, what can that do to a person's sense of, like, not only esteem, but, like, fucking existence when you know that everyone around you, like, thinks, as you said, that what you are is illegal. And that's why, whilst it's funny when she's like, I had to leave when I was a little bit lesbian. Um, I literally had to leave. You know, there's... It is still very funny, um... But it's that's where it starts mm. to get, mm. you know, much darker. And she posits the possibility of being both homosexual and homophobic, which equates, as you say, to a lot of self-loathing and a lot of shame. Hannah talking about self-deprecation was just such a powerful light bulb moment for me, which is what so much of this show does. The way she just presents ideas, really simple ideas, and just, for me, a very revelatory new light was mm. um, just riveting. Whilst her identity as a queer woman is central to her performance, this is actually a collaborative rallying cry for anyone who wants to stop apologising for who they are, who wants to challenge inequality and the tools which maintain inequality at its very core. It makes you take something out of isolation, for example, the idea that self-deprecation is charming, and view it as something really quite culturally pervasive and damaging. And she does this in other instances where she talks about how we have to stop seeing artists as these creative insane geniuses Mm -hmm. rather than just regular humans she does this by deftly weaving art identity and mental health together she recalls when a man comes up to her after a gig and tells her not to take medication for depression because great artists he said need to be a bit mad look at van gogh he says and hannah who was an art history major at university and manages for i think the first time to make art history funny and interesting in a Mm. stand-up show says Mm. van gogh was bipolar he took lithium we have to stop thinking of artists as these mad geniuses she argues not just for us we have to allow them to be human and to be allowed to kind of medicate yeah yeah i think that's another really interesting place that the show splinters off to in such a confident way it's such a huge topic that she talks about with such ease 
that myth that artists have to be full of pain and complications and tragedy to be able to produce valid art. And I think that's a really dangerous way of looking at art. At best, wildly over-romanticised, at worst, very damaging. And it's definitely a viewpoint I've been guilty of in the past. And to push it further, I think that's a myth that can mutate and allows us to believe it's okay to put Roman Polanski, a man who raped a 13-year-old, front row at a fashion show. She talks about Van Gogh's sunflowers and she says the reason why Van Gogh um, produced the sunflowers is not because he was a mad creative genius, it's because he had a brother that loved him so much even throughout everything he did wrong to him and who believed in him and who helped him put forward this piece of art. She says Van Gogh didn't make the sunflowers because he was a brilliantly mad creative genius. Mm. Van Gogh made the sunflowers because he had a brother who believed in him and mm. who stuck by him. And in that sense, great art is about communication. Yeah. In another instance, she references Picasso, who wrote age 42 of his 17-year-old lover, Marie-Thérèse Voltaire, we are both in our prime. This is her response to him writing this. And this is the bit that made me cry. A 17-year-old girl is just never, ever, ever in her prime, ever. I am in my prime. Would you test your strength out on me? Self-deprecation is not the only thing women do that men do not. Women also temper their anger, she says. People feel safer when men do the angry comedy. When I do it, I'm just a miserable lesbian ruining the fun and the banter. Mm. She goes on to talk about the role of anger in trauma. She discusses being raped in her 20s and she teeters on the verge of tears during this period and actually for a very long time. She kind of manages to keep that emotional it's it's so close but it's it's just teetering in this in this very powerful way and she says she refuses to implicate the audience in her anger i have a right to be angry but not to spread it she says i found what she had to say about anger and trauma really interesting and i wonder if this is quite a controversial line of thinking i imagine there are other rape victims who would argue that they are validated and galvanized by their anger and that their anger gives them strength Obviously, I can only speculate. I'm not a victim of sexual abuse. Did it make you think differently about anger as an, as an emotional response and the role it plays, Dog? I think it just reiterated how much of a, of a personal and idiosyncratic thing it is, the way that someone mm. responds to trauma. And it made me glad that all those different experiences and responses are being given room to be heard. I was also fascinated as someone who loves comedy and watches comedy and tries to write forms of comedy by what this show and this woman means for the future of the art form. I think for so long we've decided that comedy is this kind of form that's created and sustained by highly intelligent neurotic blokes in basements shouting into microphones maybe holding a pint of beer. They decide the rules, they get to say things like nothing is off limits in comedy, making something off limits is censorship. Now, I think that that's actually a really complicated and interesting issue and probably not one to delve into right now. But what I found so interesting about Hannah Gadsby is that this is a comedian who is questioning those apparently untouchable rules of comedy. She's saying, no, some stuff is off limit. She talks about Monica Lewinsky and how we laughed at her when we should have been laughing at the man who abused his power for his own personal gain and ruined her life. Still one of the best TED Talks I've ever seen, Monica Lewinsky's. Mm. You know Monica Lewinsky was in the audience yeah. at one of her shows and she came backstage afterwards and they had a chat. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it's amazing. Do you know who used to be a uh, easy punchline? Monica Lewinsky. Maybe 
If comedians had done their job properly and made fun of the man who abused his power, then perhaps we might have had a middle-aged woman with an appropriate amount of experience in the White House. Instead, as we do, a man who openly admitted to sexually assaulting vulnerable young women because he could. She unpicks the hierarchy and the sort of ethics of the punchline's punch bag. In Nanette, she's deconstructing and questioning the whole form itself, not just through her analysis, but through the very nature of the show. This is a comedian so funny and and so confident and authoritative and yet so thoughtful and inclusive. And the material doesn't suffer. For so long we've been told that the traditional rules of comedy mean that earnestness or hyper-vulnerability or sensitivity can't weave through proper stand-up. And yet here is someone making us both laugh and cry, delivering heartbreaking truths without anyone suffering at the hand of her really punchy gags. Yeah, there's a bit where she says, well, you know, what kind of insult is it to call someone too sensitive? Mm. Like, why would I ever want to not be sensitive? Mm. That is one of my greatest strengths, yeah. she says. Yeah. The New York Post calls it a TED talk about comedy, which I think is a really good way of summarising that deconstruction that the genre undergoes in this show. She explains that for comedy to be really good, there has to be a tension. It starts dark, she is the comedian, suspends the tension and then alleviates it with a joke. You're supposed to feel tense during comedy, she says. I am making you tense so that I can offer you relief. And that's when you laugh. It's like the rain after that humid, oppressive storm. Mm. And I think that really enforces the mastery of a good comedian. They are emotional conductors, aren't Mm. they? Mm. So what happens when you don't want to give the banana skin, she says? What happens when you don't want to make people feel tense, but more importantly, you don't want to relieve the joke because it's not funny. Hannah says she no longer wants to alleviate the joke. She no longer wants to offer the relief, the rainstorm. She no longer wants to laugh at herself. She no longer wants to save the audience from the bits of her story, her life story, her truth, which just really aren't at all funny. And that is why Hannah feels like she has to quit comedy. I'd like to end on a quote from Zoe Beattie's brilliant piece on the pool on this subject. It's a radical, highly intelligent, somewhat poetic articulation of shame of the things we keep buried or are told to bury inside of us and of the intricate workings of the huge systems that keep them there. Nanette is not just a woman's story, it's a performance of inequality, the patriarchy and all of its repercussions. In Nanette, Gadsby curates a collaborative experience, no matter your privilege, as she draws out her own shame, our own shame quickly surfaces too. Shame that we have perhaps been taught to harbour by society, and shame that we have intentionally or otherwise imposed on others. It's not just a rallying cry, but a biting, sacrificial siren that demands all of us to wake the fuck up. Thank you, Hannah Gadsby. Please don't quit comedy. Reshape it instead. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's now time for a big old bumper sesh of Ask the Hilo. Ask the Hilo's been suffering a little bit of late. We've been trying to cover slightly too much, and three days later, we've been forced to emerge, blinking and starving from the Hilo studio, which means we haven't had much time for Ask the Hilo. But Dolly has curated the best from Ye Old Mailbag. Why don't you kick us off, Doll? Do you want to start with the first letter? 
Recently, my friend of 12 years stopped talking to me. The last contact was around Easter where she said that I hadn't done anything wrong, but the conversation ended with her hanging up on me and we've never spoken since. My dad died in January and she was really great, texting me every day to see how I was, offering help, etc. This made it all the more weird when the contact just stopped one day. I'm 41 years old and I feel I need to add that part about my age as it reads like I'm a bloody schoolgirl. I wouldn't want her in my life after all of this and feel only anger towards her for making me go a little insane in a really horrible time in my life, but I would just be interested in your thoughts about it all. The thing I found really interesting about this email is I think there is this complete myth perpetuated in society that the only times that... um, female friendships really suffer is in your teenage years or perhaps your early 20s. You know, you hear a lot, little girls are bitches leaving each other out in the playground. And actually, like, yes, they can be. The the worst memory I have of being a child, and I'm very lucky that this is my worst memory, is being 11 and having a note pushed under my door when I was at boarding school saying that there was no room for me in the friendship group anymore. And in one swift motion, the bottom fell out of my mm. world and everyone I loved away from my family had decided there wasn't room for me and it and it remains one of the most hideously isolating moments in life but big old but I know women in their 40s and I know women in their 40s who have been treated terribly by friends in times of need for seemingly no apparent reasons and what I have learned is that just as the smallest thing when I was 11 could have got me knocked out of a friendship group, the smallest thing can happen in their 40s. You've gone through this awful traumatizing time of your dad dying. And I almost wonder if your friend, because when you're in your 40s, you've like lived a lot of life, you know, not loads, I'm not saying it's ancient by any bloody means, but you have your own problems, you know, a parent dying awfully no longer becomes a complete anomaly. Um, There's other stuff that you might have gone through in your 40s, like divorce, you know, fired from jobs, losing money, gaining lots of money, like really big kind of life things. And you mentioned you've gone through this really big life change, but I wonder what big life change your friend might have gone through that has led her to abandon you in this very cruel way. And I can completely see why you don't want to forgive her. I don't think I would be able to forgive her. But I wonder increasingly, as we all have more life experience, it's a real reminder not to view someone else's behaviour in relation to you. She might not just be acting like that because she's a cow and she's being a terrible friend to you. She might be acting like that because of something in her own life as well. That's the first thing I thought when I read it. I thought, I think this person's going through something horrific or really massive, seismic, and she feels for some reason she can't talk to you about it. Maybe she feels embarrassed because the problem doesn't seem on the surface as as awful and horrible as losing mm. a parent. Mm. Because I have to say, having someone... I think being ignored is, like, the cruelest thing that you can do to being a person, which is, true. like, why I feel so strongly about ghosting. But I won't go on about that again. Um, but I think I think back to the times in my life where... Just, like, try and understand where this woman is coming from. I try to think back in times of my life where I have, like, phased someone out. And the only times I've ever done it, it when I'm going through something that, and I can't talk to people about it. And it's so it's a really selfish act, and my friends have spoken to me about it, and I don't do it anymore. But there have been moments in my life that have been so dark or so confusing that I just can't 
talk to anyone I can't listen to their problems I can't even even if they're going through something horrific I just can't I know this make this makes me sound like a really selfish person and I have worked to change it about myself but I just I do think that for some people when they're experiencing something that they're trying to get their head around or that they find really overwhelming the opposite what most people do is reach out to bring people closer to them and there are people who that is just unthinkable and the and what they do is they just turn their phone off so i wonder that that's my like charitable view that she that they might be that as pandora says it still doesn't excuse the behavior of kind of of leaving you on your own in a time of such difficulty so you don't have to forgive her and you don't have to you know reforge a friendship with her if i were you just for your own sense of closure i would write her a letter and i would just say this is i don't know what's going on if something is going on in your life i i wish that you'd reached out to me because i would love to have helped you in the way that you helped me when i was grieving um and you know tell her tell her what you feel about how she behaved and then wish her well there are so many stories i have that relate so perfectly to the story but they're not my stories to tell and Mm. I don't want people who could identify themselves as knowing I've told their stories so I'm going to try and keep it um, quite generic I agree with Dolly that writing a letter could be really therapeutic for you do remember there's a possibility she won't reply and you might not just be upset you might be furious at that point there is a brutal possibility and I think it's important to say it because it is a sort of worst nightmare scenario when it comes to friendship but it is it's not completely impossible is that she has decided her she has decided that your friendship is not something she wants to pursue and she's yeah. done it at a fucking terrible time yeah um when you're at your lowest ebb probably but i that's could be a possibility that's, that's i'm right yeah i'm that. i'm tremendously loyal and fairly consistent with my friendships i have a lot of faults but those are two things that i know i am in a friendship dogged so, i can't get rid of you Labrador so I have lost few friends over the years but the ones I have lost are pretty much ones that I have had to leave because it is a friendship that's not good for me or perhaps we're just not as close as we used to be and that is really rare for me to have to do because I think I've been lucky with the communication of the women I'm around me and vice versa I haven't it hasn't got to that point where it's been completely derailed like this friend has done to you but it is not beyond the rounds of possibility that two women wake up one morning and realize they are no longer compatible as friends and you do say in your longer letter that you several times felt she was drifting and you said to her what am I doing what have I done wrong and she said you haven't done anything wrong I wouldn't just dump you as a friend but if you had done anything wrong, I, I wouldn't tell you. But there's nothing to worry about. And you say, you know, you haven't spoken since Easter. In the grand scheme of things, you're 41 years old. You've been friends for 12 years. Speaking since Easter, four months, not a long time. Perhaps yeah. you guys might lose a year and you might come closer together. Perhaps you'll never trust her in the same way again. But from a very personal perspective, I would write a letter like Dolly said, because I'm definitely one for closure. Um, and I would try and set my anger somewhere Mm. elsewhere Mm. and focus on the fact that you do have friends that have been really supportive to you when your father has died and you do have friends who don't play games because some people do play games it's not something I personally would ever place any stock by because I think it's cruel and time consuming but some women or men do and maybe that's what she's doing for her own personal reasons you might never know and I think you've got really good perspective on it you say in your longer letter that you've got 
you know great group of friends that have all been brilliant and I think you know that this isn't something to self-flagellate you know to, to really kind of pull yourself apart of what is it that I've done but equally another thing to keep in mind which I think people don't talk about as much with friendship and it's something I'm asked about a lot actually after I wrote the book is that you know we shed people we gain people that is the journey of life and that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong we're here for a long time hopefully and you lose people along the way for sometimes no other reason than you just grow up or you grow apart but that doesn't mean that sometimes it's not extraordinarily painful of course and the and the scenario of this does make it a painful one particularly when you are at your most vulnerable and i and i would feel exactly the same as you if Mm -hmm. i'm honest um godspeed enjoy the great women around you (laughs) let us know if you ever hear back oh i'd love to know actually you must tell us that was a very nice jericho sign off there thank you panda can't help it now (laughs) I work in a completely male-dominated office. Only 8% of the staff in my company are women, and in my department, I am the only woman in a non-admin role. Since I started in this job, all my reviews have been excellent. My seniors always tell me that I am the highest performing member of my team. Everything was going well, and I was happy with my job, until I accidentally found out that I was getting paid 18% less than every other male person in my team. I had a chat with my line manager who agreed that I definitely do deserve a pay rise, and the fact that I was getting paid less than everyone else was only due to the timing when I was hired. After several discussions with HR, I was officially told I will not be getting one as it could not be justified. I asked for another meeting with my manager and our director to discuss this further. For two hours, they did nothing but praise me, but also told me there's nothing they could do and it would be a shame to ruin my excellent reputation by carrying on fighting about it. I cannot bypass the fact that I am the youngest, the only woman and the only foreigner in the team. I don't want to go on a personal crusade, hoping to change the world, but at the same time I cannot tolerate this injustice. Do I leave or do I stay? Is this a blatant example of pay inequality or am I just greedy? Dolly, why don't you kick us off with a letter you had from an employment lawyer on this? In legal terms, it's certainly possible that her employer is breaking the law. Women have a right to be paid the same as a male comparator if they're doing like work, i.e. the same or similar job, or work of equal value. Different jobs, but similar levels of skill or responsibility. It sounds like one of those probably applies here. It doesn't sound to me like she's been greedy at all. If she can't get anywhere with HR, her next step would probably be to put in a written grievance to try to get them to take it more seriously. But she is sadly right to be worried about the impact on her career. It's unlawful to treat an employee less favourably because they've complained about discrimination, but in reality it happens all the time and it can be difficult to prove. Ultimately, she could potentially bring an employment tribunal claim, but that would be a big drain on her time, money and sanity. My advice would be for her to try again with HR, but present them with good evidence about her market value. Recruiters or salary surveys might help. If they are keen to retain her, that might focus their minds a bit. If not, she can go down the grievance route, but I'd recommend doing it with her eyes open and for her to look for other opportunities at the same time. It's so frustrating that the law only helps you so far in this sort of situation. That's really good to get some advice on it. I'd also like to caution and please don't email me saying I'm being anti-feminist or we need to fight this good fight because I know, I know we all have experiences of this kind of situation in the office is I think with all of the really positive conversations happening around parity in the workplace, we need to remember that sometimes there are contributing factors as to why a woman might be being paid less than a man in the same team as her. You don't, you mentioned you're the youngest and you mentioned they say you are kind of 
the accelerating the quickest with perhaps the biggest potential but you don't actually mention if all these men are senior to you yeah it wasn't we looked over the email a couple of times but it's not clear whether you're the only junior member of the team yeah if you are in a junior position and there are all other men on your team and they are all white and british and male and straight you know they are all those things that would insinuate they carry all the privilege if they are senior to you if they have more years experience maybe on big deals that you deal with in the work that you do there is a reason why they're earning more and i want us to remember not to kind of head straight for the feminist rhetoric or to employ the hyperbole and to keep really focused on when parity is really important and that is when you are doing the exact same job if there are differing factors there may be differing wages and I, I think it's really great that you kept on having these meetings and I think take strong evidence and if you feel like there are people in that meeting who as you say are saying you know don't sully your good reputation for this just be very very careful about how you approach it make sure that it comes across as impersonal as possible keep your tone very level maybe request a meeting with people that aren't you know directly working on your team or anything like that and also bring in context say I'm not trying to be cocky. I'm not trying to sully my good reputation as someone easy to work with and hardworking. I'm placing this in the greater movement right now of women claiming what they are worth. Mm. Please mm. understand that I'm asking for what I am worth mm. and I am asking for what all the other men on my team know they are worth and deserve. Bit of an Annette moment there. But it's just a word to kind of everyone else just to remember for us to really do do due diligence before you escalate to that kind of uh, very flammable, and rightly so, but very flammable conversation. Another one from the old mailbag about reading, our favourite pastime. I would love to know if you have any advice on how to read. I know that statement sounds completely ridiculous, but I've noticed that in recent months, my ability to concentrate on one piece of writing, no matter how short or long it may be, is becoming shorter and shorter. I can't get through a sentence or two without my mind drifting. Every week when I hear you both discussing interesting texts that you have read, I can't help but long for an attention span long enough to actually read the piece and take it all in, let alone going on to form an opinion surrounding what I've read. Dolly? I don't think that's a ridiculous question at all. I think it's a really important question. In fact, a few years ago, I wrote a piece for the Sunday Times on this very subject because I realised that since I'd immersed myself so much into an online world and being on social media all the time, I couldn't concentrate when I was reading. And I spoke to a psychologist who said that what happens is if you're constantly browsing all day, something you get into a routine in your brain where you do something for two minutes and then your brain starts demanding a new task because that's how it works when you're going from tab to tab to tab and then that's what happens when you're reading so it doesn't mean you're losing your concentration and you're doomed it means your brain has changed shape and you need to change it back again um so the thing that's really helped me is um putting my phone in a different room and putting it on airplane mode to be quite frank and uh, the other thing is is i take books in my bag always and then every time that i would go to pick up my phone when i'm on a journey even just listen to a podcast I remember to pick up the book instead and I know that sounds very simple but I'm someone who's like a picker and a scratcher with things I'm compulsive with stuff so you need almost like you know you have like an elastic band that you snap to stop to do something that's what you need to do with always having a book in your bag so that's my advice I actually would agree with you on that I wrote a piece for Elle magazine recently about whether or not social media was 
ruining our concentration span because that's a theory that's been Mm. abounding Mm. is that we can't concentrate for longer than three seconds anymore and I spoke to some cognitive psychologists who said you can't ruin your concentration Mm. span your concentration Mm. span is as long or as short as the task in hand what you are doing um is trying to do lots of different things at once yes so if you're reading a piece and your phone is also on the table next to you and you're eating dinner and love islands on the telly Mm. then you are fragmenting that concentration span if you go into a quiet room no telly no food no phone no other people and concentrate on that piece or that book then you're in a completely different climate so I found that really reassuring it's not that like the internet's destroying us all and we'll never read again it's that we're we're not being kind of respectful of the time and the energy that reading is um that is needed to read I think we sometimes misunderstand reading and we think it's a passive endeavour it's a creative act reading is not passive you have to create worlds in your head it's It's collaborative it's between the brain and the book so allow them both to flourish and find a happy relationship the thing I found scary recently is I went to this literary festival and Philip Hensher who's a brilliant novelist was speaking and he said I fear that the way that our habits and brains are changing in terms of how we browse means that how did he phrase it it was so hauntingly phrased he said I worry that the reading a novel when I was growing up was as universal as watching tv or going to the cinema or you know chewing gum he said I worry that reading fiction will become as niche a hobby as making kind of model railways yeah yeah and you don't want that to happen and here at the high low we're going to keep on (laughs) fighting the good fight banging you over the head each week with a list of articles and books we've enjoyed. So hang on in there. We'll get through it together. And finally, time for one last question. I love my boyfriend dearly. We've been together nearly two years and lived together happily with our two cats. However, he loves football and I can't bear it. With World Cup season upon us, I feel like there is no escape and it's starting to cause arguments in our relationship. He is planning a lot of his free time around televised games and filling up his calendar with multiple dates to go to matches. I know it's something he enjoys, but I hate how it controls our schedule and dictates when his free weekends are. It doesn't help that my overall stance on football is extremely negative. I struggle to see the appeal when the industry to me seems sexist and overpaid and there's so much about corruption and racism in FIFA, etc. It worries me that he has such a strong passion for something that I really have no interest in and find quite problematic. Should I just accept it will be part of our lives forever and learn to love it? Or am I right to stand my ground and get annoyed whenever he tells me about the next unmissable big game? Controversial opinion to hold the day after England's (laughs) historic victory. Is Mrs CJ a football fan? Um, She's into it. She retains an interest because of me and she humours me a lot of the time. She's a much nicer wife than me. Then I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like completely unbothered. I'm completely impartial. But does it? Bo- but does it annoy you? That's the question. Sometimes it's a bit loud. But do you feel like it's too much of a monopoly on his time? Um, Ollie goes to a lot of games. He's yeah, a that's. I know. That's why I thought he's a, a season question. ticket holder. Sometimes it annoys me if I want to do something nice. But um, largely, I just ignore it. Mm. In the same, that is his biggest passion. My mm. biggest passion is reading. He's got mm. absolutely no interest in it. If I'm like, please read this article, it's incredible. He'll do that one in 10 times. Mm. So some of you may think it's quite strange we're married, given that our biggest passions in life have nothing to do with each other. No, no, no. I think this is a really, really good point. I think shared interests in relationships, we put way too much well, of Well, I on maintain, it. and I still maintain, and it's the same in my parents, actually, not that my relationship is anything like theirs. It is very different. 
but I maintain that it is much more important to have shared um, family values, um, emotional responses to stuff, yes. um, not even necessarily political views, but social socio-political views so like people how you treat people how you think about charity how you interpret news how you live your lives how you wake up in the morning how you like to go on holiday how you like to eat a meal those those kind of like very um human things Mm. i think are really important um i actually think like the big hobbies that's fine he has people who love football he can Mm. go enjoy football Mm. i have people that love books i go enjoy books um we're both respectful probably him him more than me both respectful of each other's great life passions so there's a bit of me that thinks that you're being a little bit too on your high horse about mm. this. Yes, mm. football it, it is problematic, like most sporting arenas. Look at gymnastics. There was the US doctor who was found guilty of molesting over 100 young US gymnasts last year. You wouldn't think that gymnastics would be a particularly mm. controversial sport. I agree, the FIFA staff's awful, but talk to any big football fans and they will say that they were disgusted by how corrupt FIFA was. I think football is so much more, and any sport is so much more than the governing bodies, and you can find corruption and racism in every single echelon of life, from literature to the movie industry, to football, to education, to Oxbridge. Maybe not so much the corruption, definitely racism, Mm. it's definitely weighted, um, you know, with inequality towards towards white people so I think take a little bit of stock and understand that he might be enjoying it for the reason why a lot of people love football and sport because of how unifying it is Mm. because of the incredible kind of emotional response it engenders the loyalty um, in in football and yes it's annoying it controls your schedule I think that's more of a conversation of okay what are you planning for the next few weekends can we make sure we carve out some time together definitely don't break up over it it's annoying at worst surely I really feel for you. I was totally in the headspace that you are in now um, when you wrote that email um, for a long time. I think a lot of it as well with me was that I grew up really near Wembley Stadium and I constantly felt the the fear of kind of big crowds at football matches and I'd be kind of shouted at. I'd feel this real aggression in the air if the team lost and I'd feel even like, a jubilant aggression that made me feel kind of scared when I was a young girl growing up when they won. And it really engendered this sense with me that football was scary and oafish and stupid and that men take it way too seriously. And I hated when men were really earnest about football. And I was really down on football, to be honest. And I always really hoped that I'd never end up with a man who was really into football. And then I met my ex-boyfriend and I've never, ever, ever met a man more obsessed with football. And I needed to find a way to be okay with it. And something that he did that was so useful is he took me, we went away for this like lovely romantic mini break. And as we were driving home, he surprised me and was like, I'm taking you to Swindon for an away match. And I was like, I felt this visceral reaction of, I don't- It's not Paris on a mini break. (laughs) But I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I felt something about it made me feel a bit scared and like I wasn't welcome there. And the the noise of it, I just really didn't want to go. And he said, it's really important to me that you go and you need to understand why why it means so much to me. And it was the best thing that he did because I realised when I was in those, what do you call them, Charlie? Stands? Stalls? 
whatever. What are they called? Yeah, stands. Stands. I realised that... Auditorium? He, he, <laughs> he explained to me that so many of the men that were around me, they a lot of them were there with their brothers or their dads, and he explained to me that when he was growing up, for a lot of those boys, that was the only time they had with their dads when they were growing up. So it's It this, is really nice how, how, many, how many boys do do it with... The first person my husband speaks to after a match is his mum and dad. But that, how amazing. Yeah. And I think I was so snooty and snobby and reductive about it. And actually what I understood when I stood in that crowd was what a bonding experience this is for so many well, men. football is not, not just about FIFA. Yeah. FIFA is a very small part of the business side of football. But that is not at the essence of football. No, it's about it's about tradition and history and connection and family and standing side by side by someone maybe not talking about the deepest stuff but feeling very deeply bonded in that moment looking out now listen dolly and i are obviously not there's you may think we're being um hypocrites here because we've been jokingly dismissing the old world cup as the football competition um and i don't feel malevolent towards and we may not be and we may not be a likely defender of football but I think it's important to say that neither of us have a problem with it currently. Dolly obviously has experienced problems with it in the past. But also, can I caveat this? When we did our very jokey World Cup section a few weeks ago, we did it not to reinforce gender stereotypes, but because we wanted to show that you don't have to be really smart and really interested and really cognizant of football to enjoy aspects of massive cultural happenings like the World Cup. Exactly. You can get involved by enjoying Robbie Williams in a silly suit and flipping the bird. You could, you know, in the same way that I enjoy like random bits of the Olympics. And we did have a letter being like, it's a real disappointment you didn't get like a football literate female to come on. This is not just a male sport and it kind of reinforces. But to be honest, the reason why we were talking about it like this is to show that you don't just have to be a man who knows everything about a sport to take things away that you enjoyed from it. Mm. I, very surprisingly, enjoyed the England game last night. Didn't expect to, no interest in football. Why? Because as I said, I could hit everyone yeah. on my street cheering. I could hear people throwing themselves onto their carpets, prostrating yeah. themselves yeah. against the very fragile Victorian walls, quite frankly. Mm. I'm surprised several of my neighbours didn't end up in bed with me after yesterday. That's why I find it powerful. And I think you need to find very small, only very small ways of enjoying football for yourself too. Because if you love this man, it ain't going anywhere. Yeah, find the human in it. And if I were you, I'd get him to take you to a match and try and understand why this means so much to him. Thank you very much for listening to The High Low. You can email us, thehighlowshow at gmail.com and tweet us at The High Low Show. Bye-bye. Goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.